This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today, we're going to uh, discuss uh, an issue that's in the news quite often, but an issue for which we often aren't given very much context or very much depth, and that's the uh, challenges and opportunities of pursuing ethics uh, in the world of business and technology today. There are controversies all across our society around Facebook and other uh, entities, uh, but we often don't talk about the ethical possibilities uh, in the world of business development and technology, and we have with us uh, a true pioneer, someone who I think is doing uh, some of the most exciting and original and impactful work uh, in this space at the intersection between really ethics and philosophy on the one hand and business development and technology, uh, Brett Hurt. He's the CEO and co-founder of Data.World. Brett, uh, in creating Data.World, also really created uh, a new kind of corporation. It's a public benefit corporation, certified B corporation it's called. Um, And among many other things, Brett is also involved in uh, business development. He's involved in philanthropy. He's the co-owner of Hurt Family Investments alongside his wife, Deborah. Uh, And he was given in 2017, this is really cool, the Best CEO Legacy Award by the Austin Business Journal. Brett began programming at the age of seven. I don't know what he was doing his first seven years of life before (laughs) that. Uh, And he's been doing stuff on the internet since 18. He has a fantastic book available for free online uh, called The Entrepreneur's Essentials. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. Before we turn to our discussion with Brett, we have our scene-setting poem for Mr. Zachary Siri. Uh, What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? What are the rules? What are the rules? Well, what are they? Let's hear. What is this moment, staring at the TV ad, frozen on the screen, where the smithereens of a mother's car floats in slow motion to the asphalt, the trite, no-texting slogans at the end, but the way her son smiles as he stares out the window just moments before? What are the rules? And my grandparents were the generation of the radio that corrupted their souls. My parents were the generation of television and cartoons that fried their brains. And we are the generation of iPhones and MacBooks and gaming PCs that the FBI uses to stare at us while we sit on the toilet flipping through our texts. What is this moment? The power that I possess in my pocket that is greater than what put a man on the moon. Able to stream in podcasts from across the globe to get my weekly British politics fix. What are the rules? And Zuckerberg is Sugar Mountain off Deutsch, like Neil Young singing to try and bring back his lost youth. He is the geek who became the robber baron, the tinkerer who had to testify before Congress, the larger-than-life baby face on C-SPAN apologizing for everything, vowing to do better. What is this moment? The way my classmates unabashedly play pointless little games on their laptops in class. The temptation of chasing the apple with the pixelated snake. The release of connecting like multiples of two, or pulling out their phones in class just out of habit. What are the rules? And what does it say that we feel the need to put little pieces of tape over our webcams like the NSA isn't already watching us? How teenagers know how to get VPNs that tell the interwebs they are in Bulgaria? And how many personal Wi-Fi hotspots are on the school bus these days heading home on the highway? How many? What are the rules? Wow. That's very powerful. <laughs> that is very powerful. What What is your message in your poem, Zachary? Well, my poem is really about... Um, how much technology surrounds us and defines our generation 
and uh, our society right now, but also uh, con how technology has in the past defined our society and how we are redefining what technology means to our society mm. today. And how important it is that we think yeah. through these issues, right? And how these the people like Zuckerberg, who were like uh, the inventors, the tinkerers, have now become like the corporations mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. established businesses. Mm -hmm. wow. Brett, how do you approach these issues? More than anyone uh, I think I've ever met, y you are deep in the technology world, but you think about these issues in a metaphysical way, I know. So how, wh what's your point of departure? How do you think about these things? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I have been programming since I was a kid. I grew up here in Austin, had an amazing mom who um, just absolutely loved me. Unfortunately, she's passed away and she noticed I was tinkering with Pong. You asked what I was doing before I was seven. Um, she knows I was tinkering with Pong at age four oh my gosh. and trying to figure out how it worked, like right. trying to take it apart and, and, and figure out the inner dynamics. And I don't remember that. I remember playing Pong, but, but uh, she, when she read about the personal computer revolution coming, she bought me my first computer at age seven back in 1979 and learned how to program with me. And then I grew up, um, you know, basically believing in a techno kind of utopia. And that, you know, that, that I think has mostly come to light. I mean, there's many good things that technology has done. I've, I've taken part in those. I've become, you know, financially successful because of those. Um, I'm able to very proudly say that uh, the technologies that my various companies, along with great teams, have developed have done good things for the world. Like, sure. I, I really believe that. Sure. Um, and, you know, Data.World is doing a great thing for the world. Um, but, you know, now we're, we're in this age where... The nerds have one. I was picked on most of my um, childhood. Now you dominate. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's and it's this weird feeling where um, where now you know you you realize that all those things we were doing back in the bulletin board days, like the way we were talking to each other as hackers in shorthand. Um, now people speak to each other like that on Twitter. And it's kind of a weird out-of-body experience mm -hmm. when you're part mm -hmm. of the fringe and then the fringe sure. moves into the mainstream with sure. all the good and bad sure. that that means. Like, you know, the, the famous, you know, saying of when you're on the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog or, or not. Like nobody really knows who's behind the computer. Um, so, you know, now there's this great responsibility that I feel and part of that uh, responsibility gets manifested in going to things like TED and, you know, where, where it really shakes you up, where it really sure. makes you think about the implications. Um, watching things like Black Mirror, like showing this is what the extreme version of tech, you know, takes you into. Um, going to uh, things like Dialogue, which is an off-the-record conference, a, a really amazing gathering which gets you to really mix it up with people and talk about these issues in a very deep way where you're, you're very actively engaged. And, you know, realizing that, um, that even though I'm a techno-utopist and that has not changed, sure. that I need to um, shake things up so that I am a good steward of technology mm -hmm. and don't take technology into a negative way. Right. 
just for profit motive. Right. And what does it mean to be a good steward for you? Well, I mean, there, you know, humanity's kind of messy. <laughs> yes. Right. We've seen this throughout history. There's, there's, you know, I'm Jewish. There's lots of things, lots of bad things that have happened, like the Holocaust. And, you know, in this country, it wasn't that long ago that, that we had slavery. And, sure. And, um, and so, you know, we're not, we're not perfect. There's definitely been some many atrocities of the past. And now we have humanity fully unleashed online in a mostly anonymous fashion. Right. And that is leading to some pretty challenging things. Yes. You know, the polarization of the country, right. the polarization of the world, the um, rise of the far right movement around the world, um, the populist movement going on around the world, um, a real kind of aversion to facts, mm -hmm. like, you know, people mm -hmm. that actually believe the earth is flat. Right. You know, they right. can find other people that believe something so crazy. And so that, that, you know, that is one of the bad things that happens with the internet. And I think intentionality matters a lot. So to be a good steward of technology, like a community of data.world, like data.world is now the world's largest collaborative data community. Wow. That's and, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's grown as fast as GitHub grew in in their early years. And it's it's got this whole commercial side too, but it's it's this big public data community as well. And you can choose to emphasize a lot of things from an intentionality standpoint. Um, I used to have a internet game back when I was here at UT. I started that when I was a freshman. By the time I was a junior, it was supposedly the most popular game on the internet. Wow! It was all for free, and it was based on D and D, and 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 people would uh, would play from all over the world, and it was kind of it was kind of amazing. It was like an amazing experience. I didn't have any money. Um, they organized a conference around it and flew me wow. out to speak wow. at it and and it, you know talk about the game. And we had a level of intentionality around the game where we could have just a lot of fun with it. And, and the people that ran quests and stuff like that, like the way the game worked is that if you got to the maximum level, you could appeal to the gods to become a god yourself, to become oh basically gosh. an immortal. Oh my gosh. And then if you became an immortal, you could run quest because you had the keys kind of behind the back door is almost like the matrix, like you right. are now part, right. Of, right. part of controlling the matrix. And the people that we promoted to be gods, we were very concerned about what is their intentionality. Of course. Like, you know, we, we didn't want anything like, you know, sexism on on it or, you know, anything like racism yeah. on it. And so how did like you that. prevent that from happening? I mean, well, I mean, if you if you saw anything like that, you'd kick someone off gotcha. pretty, pretty fast. <laughs> And, you know, we can do the same thing at data.world when we see anything going into a really bad, mm -hmm. bad place. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's this weird time in technology where there's a lot of that stuff that's been going on, sure. which is not being addressed fast enough. Mm -hmm. And it's not being f addressed fast enough because the profit motives are such where it's like, well, but it's good for advertising dollars. Right. right. And it's good for usage metrics if people, you know, become very, um, you know, just kind of addicted to these platforms. Right. And so I feel like I've become a very successful technologist um, because of my weird skill set early on and passion early on. 
and that I can be a part of the change towards good intentionality with technology and that I have a voice mm -hmm. for that. And so, you know, you can choose to emphasize certain things as a CEO, as a leader of a company. And one thing that, that you know, you know about our company that you mentioned in the intro is that we're a B Corporation. Yes. And that means that we have a public benefit mission statement that anybody can read. And we are required to report out on how we're living that mission. Again, good intentionality. And that we're required to report it out to shareholders, but we decided instead, let's just report it out to everybody. That's and right. so everybody can tune in to it. And one of the letters I just wrote recently, it was the three-year anniversary of us being live, mm -hmm. and here's how we're fulfilling right. this I mission read, you statement. Went, you went bowling. I read about that. Yeah, well, yeah. that's yeah, that's one of the fun fun aspects of what happened, you know, as a company and just celebrating well, an amazing celebrate. team. That's absolutely, right. yeah, right. you, you absolutely. How do you grade but, yourself, Brett? I mean, you 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 you've obviously uh, put down a marker that you want people to judge you not just for your profitability but for the public benefit, and that's that's courageous enough. Now that you've done that, how do you grade yourself? What what are the criteria you have for saying you've done enough public benefit or you've not done enough? Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. I don't. I don't feel like there's a enough. Okay. There's a. You know, one of the things that drives me right now. You know, th th there's a question of like, why should I do anything right now? Like, I've made enough money. I didn't need to start Data.World. So why, why do anything? Like, why not just travel the world, etc.? And I tried that for a couple of years. Right. And it felt pretty empty at this at this young age, you know, where I've got lots of energy. I'm sure. at the top of my game, and my my own daughter. It's cool you have your son Zachary here. You know, my own daughter Rachel, when she was ten, kept on asking me, "When am I going to start another company?" And right. one day she looked at me and pointed her finger at me and said, "When are you going to start another company?" There we go. And I thought, wow, you know, my son Levi has not gotten to see that struggle at all sure like so what am i really teaching them and you know i needed a break it was good to have have a break and i was more active on my break than probably many people are with full-time i'm jobs. sure you were working harder on break than most I, people <laughs> I, I wasn't it was definitely not as hard as leading a company and starting a company but but uh you know it's backing lots of startups i still back lots of startups i was i did a stint here at at UT Austin as an entrepreneur residence. That was fun to help student entrepreneurs. I did a number of things, but I traveled, you know, three months out of the year and I had, I had, you know, I had a just mostly, you know, like relaxation time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I stepped back into the arena because I'm like, you know, I can really make a mark in a very positive way, but I wanted to, I wanted to do it with even more intentionality. So I think you can evolve to become even more ethical as a business leader and realize that you have a bigger megaphone than you've ever had before. Sure, sure, sure. And that that can serve as a model for people, including your own children. Right. I mean, my children are watching. The very first investors in Data.World are Rachel and Levi. That's great. That was literally the first checks in. That's great. And they'll hold you accountable. Oh, yeah. They, and they, I remember <laughs> Levi, you know, literally crying. Um, 
when Rachel's like, you know, you're going to want to put money in this. He's like, but I can use it for toys. She's like, you're going to really regret it if you don't invest. And, and you know, they're very proud of, of how the company has grown. That's fantastic. And it's being used in lots of universities to help teach sure. data science and data analytics. Lots of governments, government of Mozambique just signed I up. It's being used all over the world. Used by the Associated Press, I saw, right? It's used by the Associated Press. It's it it's That's a pretty amazing story. Just a quick digression on that because I'm so proud of this. You've actually all experienced uh, listening to this podcast, Data.World. You've just never heard of it. Um, maybe, maybe some of you are on the community already. But the Associated Press for issues like the opioid crisis mm -hmm. has used Data.World to deliver their data sets on that crisis, which are national data sets that are all also localized where all of their customers, people like the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post and the New York Times, USA Today, can write stories based on that data. Right. And it can go down to the local level where the Chicago Tribune can say, well, I'm going to write a story about how the opioid crisis has impacted people in Chicago in this part of Chicago, as well as in these neighboring cities to Chicago, as well as the whole state. Wow. Um, as well as neighboring states, as well as compared to the nation. And it makes it very easy for everyone to be a data journalist without having to be a data scientist, yes, which there's yes. very few data scientists yes. in, in the US or the world. By the way, career tip, that's one of the best things you could be right now as a data scientist. Yes. You could literally almost throw a dart and get an amazing job in that. And so, you know, that, that, that led to the team that selected Data.World at the Associated Press winning something called the Chairman's Award, which is like the Nobel Prize of news. Wow. And it's only given out once a year. And many years, it's not given out at all because it has to be something worthy enough. And, and it was given out because of how it's changed the game in data journalism and how it's made um, all these papers have this capability to write very data-driven articles, where if you look at the Pulitzer Prize-winning articles recently, most of them are very data-rich sure, articles. Sure, sure. And so that's pretty, that's pretty that's cool. That's a pretty neat level of intentionality that went in. Sure. You know, what do we choose to emphasize in the community of data.world? And that doesn't mean there's not some controversial things in there like, in 2017, the most popular data set on the platform was actually the Russian propaganda leading up to the presidential election. Um, and that got lots and lots of comments imagine. and analysis. Imagine. And the Washington Post and the New York Times wrote articles based on that data set. Again, probably most people don't know that that data came from data.world. Um, so, you know, so that there, there are things that are controversial, too, sure, sure. In, in data. But um, but the the what you choose to focus the the community on what you choose to emphasize, right. and if you're just trying to emphasize like you know let's let's just like push the button on the most inflammatory data, the one that's right. getting the most controversy, et cetera. Right. Well, then you're going to define the data dot world community based on outrage instead of right. good intentionality. And and, and and you've you've made a decision that even though putting the outrageous data up might get you more clicks and might actually be more profitable. You are willing to be profitable by pursuing things that you feel are more more appropriate for the interests of society. Well, it's a community, so people will put some stuff up that uh, that they believe, believe in, like the Russian propaganda right. leading up to the presidential election. And um, 
you know, when they put it up, it's uh, it's something that potentially is going to get a lot of attention. Right. But it doesn't mean that you need to draw a lot of additional attention to it, or you need to right. you need to create algorithms in the system where those always float up to the top mm-hmm. type of thing. And that's um that's one of the things that that's that very has, different from how Facebook does things. Yeah, it it is, and um, that bothers me. I mean, I wrote a blog post on my blog is lucky7.io, and I I mirror those posts on medium and that's where my book the entrepreneur's essentials is so if you follow me at at data brett you'll see the book there all for free it'll be it'll come out in print next year Um, but i always want it to be free because seth godin's first book the bootstrappers bible which i'm a product of um, was free and and i love that book and you know one of the posts i wrote recently uh, well not that recently but back in april of this year was about this being Facebook's defining year. Yes, yes. And it's been disappointing to me um, because, like, I had I have a dream that, and I literally had this dream that Facebook converted into a B corporation and decided just to like really emphasize good intentionality. Why doesn't Zuckerberg and do that? Why don't they do? He that? has the power to do that. Yeah. Why Why don't they? Do, and he has enough money. Why Why doesn't he follow your model? I don't know. I don't know. I've never talked with him about it. Um, and someone challenged me recently to to, to try to talk with him mm-hmm. about it. And mm-hmm. I, I would like to have a conversation about it. You know, you're still a for-profit corporation. Sure, sure. And you still can give shareholders an amazing return. Being a B corporation is no excuse not to have top-tier financial performance. Right, right, right. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that you can solve a business to kind of have it all. And... He, he think, could not take that, certain ads, right? He I could, think the yeah. things that are so amazing about Facebook, I'm a proud Facebook user, okay? So even though I find some problems in it, um, we recently had a Bizarre Voice reunion, which was my previous business, which was you know fantastically successful. And the Bizarre Voice reunion we organized on Facebook and over 200 sure. people you know, came to it and it was just immediate in-person love, laughter, tears. It was just awesome, you know? Bizarre Voice was the number one rated company to work for in Austin when it was small, then medium, then large, and a real innovator in culture. And we've taken that into data.world, and we just won our fourth annual Best Place to Work Award. But we organized that because of Facebook. It was so easy to organize because of Facebook. And how much much is enough? And and it's not like Facebook's going to stop growing if they stop allowing, you know, crazy political ads and people from Russia, you know, targeting right, right. people and, and 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 you know, there are all these excuses why that would be hard, like, well, but the ads coming in, maybe the people from Russia could run them through another entity that would be a US based entity where you wouldn't know where the money's flowing. But I just don't buy that. I, I think I think that you could have a certain barrier of course to do that validation of course and find out and so i think if you're you know we're not an ad supported business and i think if you are an ad supported business it takes you down this slippery slope where you can start to really unravel from a from a business ethics standpoint and then people have different definitions of what they consider ethical right like some people are just total like nothing matters but free speech and therefore everything 
goes. And, you know, the reality is you can't walk into a movie theater and yell fire. Right. That is illegal. Right. And you can't be in Germany and and have a big swastika on your chest. That's also illegal. So there are certain barriers. And one thing that I am very optimistic on and will always be optimistic on is that humanity always muddles its way through. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of gray in everything. There's not that much black and white. There are certain things right. like, you know, you shouldn't cheat on your spouse. There's certain like things that are like real bright lines um, or, you know, you know, beat your children or something like that. Like there's there's things that just anybody would look at as, as, as atrocious. But in business, as well as in many decisions in life, there is a lot of gray. Of course. And people define their lines differently. And I, uh, I'm always grappling with that. Like, sure, what are what sure, are my lines? Sure. But I'm very deliberate and conscious about that. And I feel like a lot of people in tech um, are so kind of, you know, they're they're like such nerds and right. so kind of right. on the borderline of Aspergers and stuff like that that uh, that they don't intentionally think about that. And that bothers me a lot and i don't know exactly how to solve that other than continue to go to the things i go to like i'm lucky that i get to go to ted every year Um, i'm lucky i get to go to things like dialogue i'm lucky that i get to go to things like the conscious capitalism ceo summit and all i can do is continue to lean in right and continue to set a model in my own company for the people that work there and the partners we partner with and the customers we have and um, invest in startups and be a mentor to them. We're investors in 77 startups and wow. 21 VC funds, and wow. I love helping them. And a lot of a lot of companies we've invested in have actually converted into B corporations, which That's is great. really cool. And they're they're experiencing fantastic success. There's no there's no trade off where all of a sudden they can't raise money or right. anything right. else. They're different. They have to explain why they're different to investors because. There is a bit of herd mentality in sure, humanity sure. where, oh, you're doing something different. Okay, well, mm. we don't know, you know. Um, and I've always seen difference as a great advantage because Absolutely. I grew up so different. I grew up so strange in Texas where it's like this kid is not playing football. You know, this kid, you know, this Texas thing, right, um, is just sitting there on the computer all the time. Now this would be normal, but, right. but back then it was very different. And I'll tell you, these days, if you found a, a, a child who is just sitting there constantly hacking on microbiology or something, and that's all they want to do, that is going to be a very successful person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, believe in that person. Like, just let them do that. Right. Don't and, say, like, hey, you know, son or daughter, we need to put a lot of balance in your life. You're just doing too yeah, much. Let them on this pursue their passion. Let them you pursue You know, microbiology. Uh, on the topic of, of young people, uh, what do you think the effects of of this of growing technology and growing access to technology are on young people and a generation that has really grown up not knowing a world without the iPhone? Yeah, I mean, and and you know, it's 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 addressed in your in your in your poem a, a bit. Um. So, you know, I read a book a while back called Everything That's Bad For You Is Good For You, and it's by Stephen Berlin Johnson. He's, a, he's kind of a great kind of tech um, analyzer, you know, kind of almost like, you know, a prophet in a way in that field. And I kind of buy into what's in that book overall. Um, 
you have to you have to remember that I am actually a test case of someone who has grown up behind a computer 40 hours a week from age seven to adulthood with very little physical social interaction, that that's where I wanted to be. And I actually found great beauty in it because you're connecting with people on a brain-to-brain level with no judgment about what they look like or anything else. So I like the the anonymity of it. You found it a democratic um, space. In I some did, ways. and um, and you know, eventually, like you still need to, you know, go and interact with the physical world. Um, you know, you you know, you have biological needs, you decide you want to have children, (laughs) you decide you want to start dating, you know, you want to get together physically with friends. Well, you can do that online now too, right? (laughs) Yeah, but, but, you know, there there is this grand debate among parents of my generation now of how much screen time should a kid get. And we have no rules on screen time in our house, but that's because we have chosen to emphasize certain things with our kids that have taken, like our son, for example, Levi, he has watched every TED Ed video that there is. And now he's moved on to watch almost every in a nutshell video that there is. So his level of learning is dramatically accelerated. Now he does also play games, but he makes good choices there. He doesn't play Fortnite, not because I told him not to, but because he thinks it's too violent. He loves playing Minecraft. He plays this one game where he builds all types of virtual drones. And so when you have a child doing that stuff, that's like really complex problem solving type oriented things on a computer, I personally don't think you should limit their screen time at all. If they're just sitting there watching, you know, videos with lewd, you know, comments, or they're making fun of people in the videos, or, you know, or there's, you know, anything like pornographic or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's not good. Um, And you as a parent have a responsibility there. But um, I think this whole argument about like limiting your kids to 20 minutes or something of screen time a day is absolutely ridiculous. And, and if my mom had done that, I would not be where I'm at today. I would not be a successful technology entrepreneur who's getting to do my part in shaping the world. And so I, I actually think we're going to be okay. Um, I do worry about the polarization side though a right. lot i worry right. about the micro bubbles of you know you can just if you believe something that's completely crazy like you know i'm as i mentioned i'm jewish if you're if you're a neo-nazi and you're just online hanging right. out with other right. neo-nazis and nobody's paying attention to that and we've seen people you know get recruited into isis Absolutely. even here in america Absolutely. because they're Absolutely. just hanging out on the here isis in texas, community here in texas exactly then that's a real problem and a real failure of parenting. Um, and I think that parents that just look at, well, they're on the computer, I have no idea what they're doing. That's also not great. You should interact in the medium that your child's in and kind of know what's going on um, and be an active parent. What was, what was wonderful among many things in the story you told about your mom was how your mom was curating and working with you. Your mom didn't simply buy you a computer. She learned to program with you. Right? Yeah, I mean, that so, was amazing. So it was it was a social experience as well as a computer experience. It was a family experience, and it was regulated in a certain way. 
And that's the topic I wanted to turn to, yeah. uh, really, uh, for, for our closing, in a sense. It does seem to me that what you're saying is that there have to be different levels of regulation in the technology world. Many are self-regulation, right? You're, you're yeah. self-regulating the many things you could do at data.world. Right. Uh, what role do you think exists for government, uh, maybe even non-governmental organizations, uh, in regulating this space? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so tricky because... I've I've lobbied in the government, you know, with the government before. Sure. I, I'm I'm a, I'm a member of APAC. I mean, I lobby every year for APAC, sure. um, which uh, you know, that's which the is, American Israel Political Action. Uh, it's not political court. action. It's policy alliance. Pol- yeah, policy it's actually alliance. not a PAC. Um, right. Oh, fair enough. But it's but it's uh, but it is it is a medium where you're educating. You know, we have a tremendous amount of turnover in Congress. Like sure. um, every two years. Over 50 congressmen or women are turning over and they come in and almost none of them have any knowledge right, at all right, of Israel. Right. And so APAC educates them because if Israel didn't have the support of America, Jews would have been wiped out in the Holocaust, for one. And if it didn't have the support of America um, today, then there would be some big problems. Like, you know, one thing that that happened just a few years ago as America stepped up to support the Iron Dome mm-hmm. in Israel, which is an anti-missile defense system and all those rockets that Hamas fires over, which is a really terrible situation um, where there's a terrorist regime that literally stated their sole goal is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. That's a big problem if you don't have technology to counter that. Right. I mean, it'd be like living in New York and having, you know, right. A neighbor, we, we're separated by oceans, but having a neighbor constantly shooting rockets into Manhattan or something. Right, so it's a great example of how there has to be a role for uh, a government entity. Right. So, so and in so, general, so in doing lobbying, yeah. right, yeah. Um, for tech, um, I've lobbied on many things before, like educating government, for example, on what are the value of cookies. You know, cookies are a technology that's used to remember who you are on a site and there's all types of things that would break on the internet if cookies went away. Like you would go to Amazon, it wouldn't remember your username and password. You know, you'd have to log in every single time. Um, it would uh, not be able to personalize products to you. Now you could say, well, I don't wanna be personalized to you, but you've been personalized to your whole life. I mean, you know, when you walk into a store physically and you're walking around, um, you know, and someone can come up to you and ask you if you need help, that is a personal interaction and everything's masked by a browser. So the, these things require a lot of education and congressmen and women have so little time right, right. to actually get educated on it that I worry that some kind of sweeping regulation on something like, uh, I mean, let's just say for argument's sake that Congress decided to set up a regulatory body that looks at everything on Facebook and determines whether or not it should post. Okay, this is an untenable situation sure, because sure. They, they, they it couldn't would require, do that. <laughs> right, it would require trillions of dollars of budget, you know, just to have people look at every single thing. And, and then you would have a very weird state, which would be a slippery slope of, well, what goes and what stays. Right, right. And so that's the extreme case, right? But there's something, there's something else, you know, like, like, could you say, well, we're going to regulate on making sure that every tech company knows when an ad is being placed, whether or not it's coming from a foreign actor? 
I actually don't think that would be that hard to mm -hmm, verify. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that there could be certain sure. things that you have to do and sure. fill out and procedures that would be followed where it would set a little bit of friction up in the system. Now, the free, free market capitalist, and I'm, I'm very much a capitalist, would shout, wait, hold on, that friction in the system is going to break the system. You know, now you're going to have revenue growth slow down, et cetera. I just don't buy that. Okay. I don't buy that. I, I actually think that the amount of ads that Russians placed, and I do think that it had an effect in the election personally, but the amount of ads that the Russians placed, it's a drop in the bucket right. for Facebook. I right. mean, the big money is coming from the brands, right. you know, right. the Walmarts of the world, right. you know, Amazon's advertising all the time on right. Facebook. It's coming from these big brands that have big, big budgets and are making billions of dollars that are spending. It's not coming. I mean, the big money is not coming from right. like right. these political ads that Jack Dorsey of Twitter said, we're not going to accept. They're not that large. There's not that, there's not that much it's, money. It actually was bigger for Twitter. You know, it was a m more material percent of their revenue um, than it is for Facebook. Facebook, right. it's like a rounding error. Right. Right. And so, and so your, your, your belief, if I, if I get this right, is, and it's a very sensible one, that we should have not, you know, big scale regulation, but certain targeted efforts to yeah, enforce would, certain moral parameters in this yeah, space. Yeah, I'd love to see, um, I would love to see like senior leaders put in place. Like one of the things that happened in the previous administration, and, and, and you know, just, just for the political record, I'm an independent. I voted for as many Republicans as I had have Democrats. I, I did not vote for Trump, would not vote for Trump. But, you know, in the Obama administration, one of the roles that they had, which was a brilliant role, and I'm proud to say this this gentleman serves on our advisory board at Data.World, is Obama appointed DJ Patel as the nation's first chief data scientist. Yes. He's an incredible guy. Like, we need more people like that in government, in government yes. that then have the ability to really create sound policy that kind of balances everything out yes. without yeah, yes. breaking the capitalist this, system. These kind of issues are things that young people really care about, particularly because it's, technology is something that we interact with every day, and it's become a very large part of our lives. And, and But we also, not only do we see the benefits of technology, but as much as we talk about how much uh, kids, are, kids my age are addicted to their phones and things, we also see the downsides of technology and how much work there is to be done. Right. So you think young people, uh, young data scientists, young Brett Hertz would be motivated today to go work uh, for a White House or state agency that's actually trying to help regulate data science and, da and data in a way that would help our society? You think so? Yeah. I really do. I gosh, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that happened in the Obama administration, which was super, super inspirational, is they had these kind of um, fellows that came in that uh, that were just like incredibly digitally astute, and they came from industry. I mean, they came wow. from like plum positions. How at many? LinkedIn a, a large number. A large number. Wow. And it was one of the last things that Obama signed right before inauguration of yes. Trump. It was one of the last things that he signed in a permanent law, these White House fellows. And we need more of that. I mean, yes. you know, they're, they're, you, need to, you need to first have inspiration at a presidential level for people yes. to go want yes. to work in an administration. Yes. But then you need to say, what can we do to get more brilliant people in yes. tech to go in and actually work on things that are policies? Because we have to, 
you know, I do think that we have to create some policies. Yes. I just think it has to be done with an incredible amount of experience. Yes. And I worry with the turnover in Congress that waiting until the theoretical last minute right. and doing a knee jerk right. legislation is not the right answer. Right. That's it, not the right it, answer. It strikes me, and, and this, this analogy is overused, but in a sense, we need a New Deal approach, which is not about one overarching regulation or policy, but a set of incremental pilot projects, in a sense, and trying different right. different avenues of making small nudge changes in certain areas that actually improve transparency in advertising and improve privacy. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I personally, you know, being such a Facebook lover myself as a, as a consumer of it, yes. um, I personally would absolutely love more functionality on Facebook that tells me where the article and the ad is coming from all the way traced back. I Even agree. if it's some shady, like, you know, agree. this came through some weird pack I've never even heard of. I want to know that. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I just refuse to think that that is that hard to do and that... Even if they'd say, well, wait, hold on. There's so many packs that could be created that would obfuscate. Come on. Right. I'm a data person. You could create a data table of all the packs and all the places that they come from anytime they come around. Sure. You could also set up some procedures where people have to go through some level of hurdle of disclosure and sign something, sure. terms of service, and and even, even you, know, you know, kind of swear on their identity. Yeah. And you know that that could that kind of stuff could easily be right. stored in data.world. Right. It could be easily be stored in, in in terms of accessing anytime you see that information. And that would only help the system. I actually think that Facebook would do dramatically better from a revenue and profit perspective if they totally leaned in. And that was the subject of my blog post of right, it right. being a defining year. That's right. And I actually invoke my game in that and like the game that I created where it's like, you know, look, this is a game. And I could focus the game on just negative aspects of things that were happening. But in we the game. can make it positive instead. That you can instead choose to emphasize as the administrator of the game. And Zuckerberg is the administrator of a game. And the game is that we are all connected socially now for the first time in human history through the world's greatest digital revolution and network revolution with supercomputers in our pockets, as you, you pointed out in your, your, your poem, that have more power than sending a man to the moon. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so we're living in this time of incredible uh, potential abundance. And it could be the most glorious time in humanity and it should be, and I think it will be, but it's going to take um, it's going to take people rising up that go out there and say we're going to do things with better intentionality. And one thing I can tell you for a fact is the B Corporation movement is very much on the rise. The conscious capitalism movement is very much on the rise. You have at the beginning of this year, Larry Fink, the CEO BlackRock, the yes. biggest financial yep. institution in the world, biggest investor in the world, something like six trillion or something under under management, saying that uh, corporations that it's really gonna they're really gonna care yes. about what their intentionality yes. is yeah. uh, towards all stakeholders. The Business Roundtable recently comes out with this statement, and a lot of people look at that and say, "Well, I don't really believe it," or they're just saying that so they don't want to be so accountable to quarterly earnings or whatnot. 
but they come out with this statement saying now it needs to be about all stakeholders. Yes. yes. And so why is that happening? Why is that happening? It's happening because consumers are caring more about right. that. Well, who are consumers? It's all of us. Right. And so this next generation I'm very bullish on is a generation which realizes the magnitude of the world's problems and they're going to step up and they're going to they're going to help us do something about it. So I'm very I'm very bullish on that. Um, and I plan to be, you know, live as long as I can to help that generation. <laughs> to lead that on. Uh, Brett, that, that is such a perfect way to close this episode. It, it, it articulates some of the key themes in our podcast week after week. Uh, the ways in which knowledge of history and understanding of complex issues can provide us avenues for improvement and even utopian changes in our world. Uh, democracy is an ever-evolving entity, and our democracy evolves best when smart people like you are combining that in intelligence with a with an optimism about change and that's so important for us zachary are you inspired what do you think yeah are we able to rewrite the rules your your poem asked what are the rules do you think we can have better rules yeah i think it's 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 something that we're definitely going to work on in the future Great. Well, thank you for joining us for this wonderful discussion. Brett, thank you for all of your insights and all of the work you do. Thank you for having this uh, amazing podcast and and uh, doing this with great intentionality. We, we are, we're very privileged to have the opportunity to do this and, and share the, these words with our, uh, with our audience. Zachary, thank you for your poem. Yeah, that was fantastic. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.